Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. My name is Asher Lev, is the name of the book that we'll be looking at today. It's by Chaim Potok, a rabbi, philosophy PhD, and American author. Asher Lev is a book of fiction. It was Potok's third novel and was published in 1972. I was drawn to this novel, like so many, by the cover design of Peter Mendelssohn. Even though it isn't distinctively Mendelssohn, there's something distinctively appealing about it. So maybe it is distinctively Mendelssohn, because making books appealing is what he does so very well. There was something else about this book that I knew, just by reading the first paragraphs, which was that it took place in Brooklyn. I could tell by the title and the author's name that it had to do with Jewish Brooklyn, and New York City more generally, and with names like Sholem Ash and Bernard Malamud floating around my head, saying, come back, come back. I thought I would give this one a chance. And it does start explosively, in a good way. It starts with controversy and heresy, in the form of a confession by the protagonist, Asher Lev. My name is Asher Lev, the Asher Lev, about whom you have read in newspapers and magazines, about whom you talk so much at your dinner affairs and cocktail parties, the notorious and legendary Lev of the Brooklyn Crucifixion. You heard that right. Not only is he a painter, one who by profession strays close to the prohibition against creating false idols, but Asher Lev's specific false idol is Jesus Christ, who would be, from his point of view, the most false of the false idols. He goes on. I am an observant Jew. Yes, of course, observant Jews do not paint crucifixions. As a matter of fact, observant Jews do not paint at all, in the way that I am painting. So strong words are being written and spoken about me. Myths are being generated. I am a traitor, an apostate, a self-hater, an inflictor of shame upon my family, my friends, my people. Also, I am a mocker of ideas sacred to Christians, a blasphemous manipulator of modes and forms revered by Gentiles for 2,000 years. How does he respond to this controversy? Well, I am none of those things. And yet, in all honesty, I confess that my accusers are not altogether wrong. He is and he isn't. Ambivalence, a dangerous thing to be in a cloistered, intellectually limited, religiously observant environment. So the scene is set. This would-be blasphemer, who would also like to be seen as a genuine follower of his community's ways, how did he end up like this? And how is Chaim Potok going to demythologize his protagonist, the artist Asher Lev? Asher Lev is born in Brooklyn, New York, the only son of a ranking member of the Ladover Hasidic Jewish community. His father is one of the leaders of this Ladover community, traveling the country to set up new Ladover centers of education and proclamation, and trying to bring the master of the universe, as God is called, into the world. 
This is what Asherlev's father did. It's what his father's father did. And the idea and expectation is that Asherlev will follow in their footsteps, serving the chief Ladover rabbi and his Ladover community. Thing is, Asherlev's eyes, hands, and body have different ideas. This is a fact that is recognized early by those around him, specifically his mother and uncle. They see that Asher has a gift for drawing. I can remember, at the age of four, holding my pencil in the firm fist grip of a child and transferring the world around me to pieces of paper. I remember drawing the contours of that world. My narrow room, with the bed, the paint-it-yourself bureau and desk and chair, the window overlooking the cemented backyard, our apartment with its white walls and rug-covered floors, and the large framed picture of the Rebbe near the living room window, the wide street that was Brooklyn Parkway, eight lanes of traffic, the red brick and white stone of the apartment houses, the neat cement squares of the sidewalks, the occasional potholes in the asphalt, the people of the street, bearded men, old women gossiping on the benches beneath the trees, little boys in skull caps and side curls, young wives in long sleeve dresses and fancy wigs. All the married women of our group concealed their natural hair beneath wigs for reasons of modesty. I grew up encrusted with lead and spectrumed with crayons. My dearest companions were Eberhard and Crayola. What? An excellent line. My best friends were Eberhard and Crayola. This is the moment I fully gave into My Name is Asher Lev. A great opening was being followed by an excellent exposition of this ingenious, but in no way cloyingly self-conscious child prodigy. In no way cloyingly self-conscious. Current Brooklyn writers, please pay attention. Perhaps one of the reasons Asher Lev is not treated as a precious piece of pixie dust that adults and their adult world will undoubtedly ruin is because the adults in Asher Lev's world are wary of his gifts. The third commandment says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. Images are too close to idolatry, and idolatry is explicitly abhorred by Jews, hence the wariness. What will this boy with this gift do? While Asher's mother is, if not proud, at least tolerant of Asher's art, his father is disgusted by his son's gift. A gift for mathematics, for music even, sure. But art? The names Picasso and Matisse mean nothing to this devout man, which makes it even more galling that his son should worship them. They will lead him to the other side, his father says, to evil. The thing is, Asher's intent is to be good and to be devout. His gift is just that, something given to him. He did not wish himself to have the ability to create beautiful and brilliant images, so it comes as a shock, even more to Asher than to those around him, that his art leads him into a head-on clash with his upbringing and values. This is addressed when Asher's mother asks her son what he feels when he draws. Is it a good feeling, she asks. Asher, too busy drawing a portrait of his mother, doesn't answer. She tries another approach. What does it mean to you, Asher? He avoids this one too. I have to put a fixative on your picture, Mama, he says. Yet it doesn't seem like a conscious evasion on Asher's part. Nor does it seem conscious when, a little while later, Asher's gift leads him to a scandal. One morning, the boy sitting to my right in class leaned over and whispered in Yiddish, 
Asher, what are you doing? I heard him, but could not understand what he was saying, and went on working with the pen. Asher, I heard him say, still in a whisper, but a little louder than before, how could you do that? I felt the boy sitting behind me lean forward and look over my shoulder. The one sitting at my left looked, too. There were gasps and murmurs of surprise. Then the one sitting in front of me, a thin, pimply-faced boy with an endlessly running nose and a high nasal voice, turned around, looked, and said in Yiddish, in a voice that could have been heard on the other side of the parkway, You defiled a holy book! Asher Lev, you desecrated the name of God! I looked at my hand. I saw the old waterman fountain pen my father had once given me. On the way out of my room earlier that morning, I had put the pen into one of my pockets. Now I held it in my hand. I had drawn a face with it across an entire printed page of my Torah. I had drawn the face in thick black ink. It was a bearded face, dark-eyed, dark-haired, vaguely menacing. On top of the face, I had drawn a head of dark hair covered by an ordinary dark hat. Yeah, that's pretty bad. In response, Asher is called in by the person who is effectively the school principal, and the situation is laid out very simply for him. It's something that Asher has been told for most of his childhood, but now it's being put to him directly and succinctly, with no ambivalence whatsoever. His gift is going to harm his people. So he has to make a choice, his people or himself. The descriptions of Asher Lev drawing are some of the best writing in the novel. Here, for instance, the author describes the young artist working on his portrait of the recently deceased Joseph Stalin. I drew him dead in his coffin, surrounded by flowers. I drew his closed, heavy-lidded eyes, his thick, straight hair, his walrus mustache. I drew it all from memory into that Hebrew notebook, and later that day I drew him again from memory into my English notebook. In the days that followed, I drew him over and over and over again. I drew him empty and hollow. I drew him swollen and bloated. I distorted his face and twisted his eyes. Over and over and over again, I drew him disfigured, ghoulish, a horror of a face in front of that mountain of flowers. Asher's obsessive behavior leads him to produce hundreds and thousands of portraits of his father, his uncle, Udell Krinsky, who runs the art supply store, and more than any other person, his mother. Holding the pad with the drawing on my lap, I carefully brushed the burnt edge of a cigarette onto the picture of my mother's face. The ash left an ugly smudge, I rubbed the smudge. It spread smoothly, leaving a gray film. I used the ash from another cigarette. The gray film deepened. I worked a long time. I used cigarette ash on the part of her shoulder not in sunlight and on the folds of her housecoat. The contours of her body began to come alive. After he is given the ultimatum at school, the head of the Ladover community, the Rebbe, intercedes and sends Asher to an artist named Jacob Kahn, 
a lapsed Ladover. It isn't clear what motivates the Rebbe to send Asher Lev, who still wants to be a believer, to Jacob Kahn, who has by and large given up his ties to religion, but Kahn exacerbates the problem in the following way. He teaches Asher Lev that, for a true artist, there is only I, no they. So in the question of us or them, there is no them, and therefore no real question. If Asherlev wants to fulfill his potential, if he wants to use his gift, he has to put himself first, first and last. And if you remember the first paragraph of the book, The Brooklyn Crucifixion, you know how this ends up. And you also know what happens in most of the latter half of the book, which is largely about how Asherlev haltingly arrives at this daring, blasphemous conclusion. The question of the needs of the individual relative to the needs of the group and the related problem of faith superseding reason led me in two separate directions. The first was towards Erasmus's 16th century work, The Praise of Folly, a long book of ethics by a skeptical Catholic in the face of a new creed, Protestantism, that Erasmus in many ways admired but as a Catholic had to reject. The Praise of Folly discusses all kinds of ideas about how to be good in society. But one of the lasting thoughts in that book, and something that connected it to my name is Asher Lev, is the notion that the world is a play, and we all have to wear a mask in order to join the action on stage. And those masks we put on in order to be part of the world, Erasmus says, we must keep wearing. As such, we remain parts of a whole, and conscious of the need to, at least in some measure, conform for the greater good. On the other hand, or in the other direction, there's the brilliant movie Strictly Ballroom, where the hero, Scott Hastings, decides he can only be himself if he breaks with everything around him and dances the way he wants to. It's a movie about dancing. However, in the process of following his dream, the protagonist forsakes the goodwill everyone has given him. Parents, dance partners, dance instructors. And why? Because he has faith. Faith in the idea that his way is the only way that he can fulfill himself that he can become a true artist. Faith is a means by which Scott Hastings succeeds, and faith is the means by which he hurts those around him. Great movie, by the way. Strictly Ballroom. In this novel, Asher Lev's continued self-identification with the Ladover clan, his determination to go on presenting himself to the world in the garb of a religious Jew, and his attendance at synagogue has a hint of self-delusion about it. But maybe self-delusion, the other side and close partner of faith, is one way that art is made. That's certainly what his mentor, Jacob Kahn, leads him to believe. In the process of following his personal faith, Asherlev finds parents who are disgusted by him, a community that shuns him, but also the ability to make great art to do something with his gift. At the same time, it's hard to know if this self-fulfillment actually makes him happier. Having said all these positive things, I cannot say I loved this book. I liked it, that's for sure, but it did drag. Potok's simplistic sentences, rarely do they run beyond a single clause of subject-verb-object, suit the story of Asher's younger years, but their lack of development means they do not match the character's changes. I would have liked more on a sentence-by-sentence level. Nonetheless, this is fundamentally a story about blasphemy, and who can get enough of those?
Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of The Adversary, L'Adversaire, by Emmanuel Carrère. Carrère. Burning Books is part of the Litopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes. Subscribe and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to litopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. My thanks to Natalie Matheson for reading the excerpts. Pretty cool. To Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. And what do you call yes, potato snacks? Crisps. And as always, go Jays. April is the greatest month. Greetings. I'm Ian Wynn, straight up California baller and host of Latopia After Dark. I'm here to match wits and sometimes lose and talk story with some of the finest minds that pass through London one of the greatest English-speaking cities on Earth. Yes, suck it, New York. Our guests are authors, activists, scientists, journalists, technology wizards, and the occasional nutjob, and all come from a place of experience and not from one of blind belief. Please join us for one of the web's most entertaining and thought-provoking shows, Latopia After Dark. (laughs) 